Matthew 26, 17 is our text for this morning as we move into what I'm going to title this passage, The Last Passover. Commonly, this is called The Last Supper, but I'm going to call it The Last Passover, just for fun. Matthew 26, 17 to 30. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he would given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the reading and preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever wondered if you've been around church for some time or you've, you've maybe grew up Catholic, don't know all your backgrounds necessarily, but have you ever wondered, what are we actually doing when we take communion? You know, commonly you get this little piece of bread in our church, it's gluten-free bread. It's not yeast-free, but it's gluten-free. Or it might be yeast-free, I don't even know. It's not unleavened bread anyway. And you get this little cup of juice, it's not wine, sadly, though I reckon we should change that. Anyway, a bit of port would go well. In fact, when I was at work, I worked at Barker College as a chaplain. We used to do communion with the staff at like 7.30 a.m. and we'd have a bit of port. <laughs> and so that was always good going into the classroom. Just filled up, um, it was helpful. But have you ever wondered, like, what are we really doing? What actually is it? Well, today we're going to seek to answer that question and, and seek to dive into this text. And this text is constructed by Matthew in such a way that it, it explains this Lord's Supper meal and actually helps us to understand it. But the way that Matthew does it is he actually puts together three scenes. And in each of these three scenes, it's sort of like, and this is a little bit trivial and trite, but it's sort of a little bit like in a children's book, you know, with the lift the flap 
I've got this, you know, Where's Spot children's book that I read to Judy, loves it. And, you know, Spot's looking for the chickens or something, and he goes to the barn, and there's a picture of a barn. And at the top of the barn, you can hear, bar. Oh, you can't hear it. That would be cool. But you can see it written, bar. And the question is, who's behind the door? And then you lift the flap, and there's, there's the sheep. Uh, and then you turn to the stable and neigh. Who's behind the flap? There's the horse. Well, when it comes to this text, there's three sections here, and each one of them is like a lifting of the flap from the Old Testament is the, the front bit. Then you lift the flap, and behind it, you see the New Testament reality. And when that flap is lifted, each one of them tells us something significant about the Lord's Supper. And so as we go through this passage, we're going to lift three flaps, and in that, we're going to be able to be far better uh, informed and instructed so that when we take the Lord's Supper, which we will do at the end of the sermon today, we're going to be able to do it in a way of, I think, hopefully, new wonder and new appreciation. So we've got three flaps to lift today, uh, and we're going to go through them each one by one. The first flap, the last Passover. The second flap, the suffering son of man. And the last flap, lift the flap number three, the new covenant. So there's lots of ideas, and we're going to dive into some Old Testament texts today and, just, and let the Old Testament kind of be the speech bubble, and then we'll flip into the New Testament and see the reality. And I hope that this sermon serves you really for the rest of your life. So that the rest of your life, as you hold bread and wine, you think of this passage and this sermon, and you're like, oh, that's what I'm doing. That's what it all means. Because that meal is designed by Jesus as an eternal drama for us to reenact and enter into to preach the gospel to ourselves and to the community each time. I'm getting ahead of myself. So, flap, lift the flap number one, the last Passover. I want to read to you verse 17 to 19 again to set the scene. Now, the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city, that's Jerusalem, to a certain man. And in the other Gospels, there's this kind of cool story. He's got a jar of water, like, and it's this code thing. You'll see a guy with a jar of water, follow him and go to his house. I wish Matthew included that, but he didn't. Okay. <laughs> um, the teacher said, and say to this man, the teacher says, my time is at hand, which sort of acts like a little secret passcode. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So this sets us in the Jewish calendar around uh, the first month of the year, and it's the middle of the month, 14th, 15th day of the month. Uh, month. And um, there's two feasts that kind of join together in the Hebrew religious worship calendar, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, and so technically it's sort of eight days Seven-day unleavened bread, one night for the Passover. And you might remember the story from Exodus, which we'll talk about in a moment. During that time, um, everyone would, would, was meant to pilgrimage to Jerusalem to actually partake of the Passover. Uh, they uh, used to have that they would sacrifice all the lambs um, in Jerusalem at that time. And you were meant to actually eat the Passover in Jerusalem. Uh, that was the, the practice at the time. And so Jesus organizes a room. It would have been a busy time of the year. He doesn't want to get left out like he did when he was born. <laughs> there was room, an actual room for them uh, to do the Passover, and he organizes it in advance. 
you would have noticed in that reading that Matthew mentions three times that word, Passover, Passover, Passover. He doesn't want us or the church to miss this because the Passover represents something incredibly significant. The original readers, they were all accustomed to the Passover. Uh, It brought to mind, you say the word Christmas, right? And we know Christmas, okay? We've done Christmas. So all he has to say is Christmas, and we're like, oh, I know Christmas. Well, here, all he has to say is Passover, and they get it. They know what happens on that day. They know the story. They know how the actual meal went. But for us, we don't, um, unless you're really studying it, etc. And so I thought it would be beneficial for us to enter back into that first Passover and then see what it was like to actually practice Passover in Jerusalem at the time, because that will help us understand what they're actually doing when they're having the last Passover. So the Passover was a feast which was instituted in Exodus chapter 12. The night before um, Israel was in slavery, Pharaoh would not let God's people go. Moses had continually come to Pharaoh with Aaron and said, let my people go that they may worship me. Pharaoh didn't want to lose his slave force and didn't want God's people to go and worship. And so ten or nine plagues come, one after the other, uh, destroying the city, destroying the people, destroying their fields. And by the end of it, Pharaoh has hardened his heart and will not listen. And so God institutes one more plague, the final plague, a devastating plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn. We're going to pick up the story in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1 to 14. You can flip there or you can read it on the screen. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So the whole calendar now, boom, this is where it begins for them. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make count for your lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So that's what's taking place in Jerusalem on this day. All the lambs are being slaughtered. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass 
over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you. Then when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So this is a dark day, but also a day of great victory. This is the night that Israel is freed from 430 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt. It begins the process where they come out as God's chosen people, as a nation, as a, the Hebrew word, gathering, which is the word we use for church. They become that. They, they leave Egypt that night because the, the angel of death goes throughout the whole land of Egypt. And anyone that doesn't have blood painted on the two doorposts and across the lintel, the angel of death goes into the home and kills the firstborn from the youngest to the oldest. Across the land of Egypt at midnight it occurs and the screams and the wailing and the moaning and the lamenting of all the mums and all the dads and all the family can be heard. Except not in the land, not in the area where Israel was, where they had the protection of the blood of the lamb. If any Israelite failed to do the task, presumably their firstborn would have died too. It was an act of faith and obedience that they would paint this blood and receive this protection. It was an act of God's mercy and grace. They didn't deserve it. It was an act of grace. And so that night, Pharaoh says, go, and they leave. And that's, they never go back into slavery in Egypt again. And so this is a significant moment. This is like Easter for us. This is like Christmas. This is one of these moments you've got to remember. You've got to teach your kids. It, it, it features every year as a joyful celebration. Bring all the family together. And in fact, uh, later on in Exodus 12, um, it, says that, it says this, You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. Passover, For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And then in re reply to all this, the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So there's this liturgical element as well. The kids meant to ask their dads, why does this happen? And then the dad explains. And so you've got the, the Old Testament gospel being preached in a feast. Right, so you can see the link to what happens in communion there. How would they eat the Passover? Well, we have record from about AD 70 of how they used to actually do it around this time. And so presumably it looked something similar to what they did past AD 70. Um, basically what they would do is they would gather, they'd, they'd kill a lamb, they'd roast it, they'd get all the bitter herbs, mash it all together, put it all out. There was four cups of wine that they would put out. And then basically it was this structured dinner party, where they would begin by reading and saying certain prayers, and then they would take the unleavened bread, because they were meant to remove all the leaven, uh, and they would break the bread and pray a blessing over it. Uh, and then they would drink a cup of wine and pray a blessing over that. And then they would take the food, and they would begin to eat the food, then they would take another cup, and they would pray a blessing over that. Then they would have their meal, and then there was a third cup, and then there was a fourth cup. And in that time, the kid would ask his dad, so why do we do this? And the dad would say, well, let me tell you, son, and they would read out the Exodus story. Um, so it, it's this highly structured meal to teach 
and to enter into, to remember and to participate in their salvation. And so it's no coincidence that this is the final feast that Jesus will participate in. This is the final Old Testament regulation that Jesus will fulfill. The final Passover. For when Jesus finishes this meal, he himself will be offered as the final Passover lamb, the final sacrificial animal. So that's, that's the background. So what are we really doing when we take communion? Well, Matthew wants to sort of just lift the flap a little bit and say, it's the new version of the Passover. It's the fulfillment of the Passover. The, the lamb, the blood, the bread, that's what's happening in this meal. We'll come to explain it a little bit more later at the end. So that's the first lift the flap. The Passover, now the Last Supper. They go together. The second lift the flap is the suffering son of man. The suffering son of man. And as I read through verses 20 to 25 this week, I was actually thinking, why is this here? Why, you know, why are we beating up on Judas again? It's like, we know he's going to betray. We know he does it. He's terrible. But why include this awkward scene where everyone's around the table um, asking who did it? Well, there's a specific reason, uh, and it's actually a really important one, and it will really help you as you take communion to know why this passage is here. So let's dive into it again. Verse 20 to 25. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. So they're taking the Passover. They're actually eating in his house now. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And notice they say, Lord. He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me, i.e. everyone. They've all been dip, chip and dip. You know, that's what's going on. Sorry. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Uh, he doesn't call him Lord, he calls him Teacher. That's what the Pharisees call him. He said to him, You have said so. And perhaps it's just he's leaning back and they're talking. Uh, maybe the disciples heard it, we don't know. So the fairly obvious reason why this little section is here is to identify that Judas is the guy that betrays Jesus, so everyone knows. Um, and it's a warning passage. But there's actually something in the Old Testament that is at play here. There's actually a lift the flap that we can see and helps us to understand communion more deeply. And what is that? Well, it's the strange twin reality of the suffering Son of Man. This is a theme that we've already touched on through Matthew's Gospel, but now we're at the climax of it. Look again at verse 24. You might have missed it. Jesus refers to himself, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. The title Son of Man is a reference to a godlike figure in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7, who sits with God and rules on earth as king. Look at Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came, like one, there came one like a... Son of man. 
He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the Son of Man. So the Son of Man, that's the image that Jesus paints, but he contrasts it with this idea of a betrayed Son of Man, a suffering Son of Man. He wants us to see, and Matthew wants us to see, that Jesus is the Son of Man, but he's the Son of Man who suffers that the eternal Son of Man who rules incomparably will also be the one who's betrayed and handed over. A mix of true strength, but also vulnerability and suffering. And how can that go together? Well, Jesus says that the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He's referring to all the messianic prophecies that not only predicted that the Messiah would rule, they loved those bits, but that he would suffer also. And there's no more clear picture of that suffering son of man than in Isaiah 53. And so Jesus is saying, this all now makes sense in me. The son of man who suffers, put the two pictures together from all the Old Testament predictions, it's me. And it's going to come through this guy who will betray me. Look at Isaiah 52, 13 and various verses in this chapter and you'll see, and we already, Mick read some of it out in his exhortation today. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, son of man. But then, who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. This is Jesus. He had no formal majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And look, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Okay, Passover night, slaughtered lambs. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generations, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief. The Son of Man goes as is written of him, high and exalted and crushed by God for our sins. And so Matthew includes this little interlude with Judas and the disciples to explain that this is the plan. He is the one. This this is what the Messiah must do. So what are we really doing when we take communion? Well, we are receiving the salvation from the suffering Son of Man. We we break some bread and we pour out some wine and, and that represents the crushing of this Messiah, the betraying of this Messiah in our place and for our sins. In order that one day he would be exalted above every name and one day we would be exalted with him. 
So you've got these pictures, and maybe it's the barn door, right? <laughs> Son of man, suffering, lift the flap, and Jesus is saying, it's me. Third, I know there's a lot here, but there's a lot here. Uh, <laughs> lift the flap, number three, the new covenant. Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, which is what they would do, they would take the bread, hold it, Bless it. And they would say, um, what do they say in the chosen, that prayer all the time? Um, Blessed are you, our Lord, our God, King of the universe, from whom all wheat comes. That's an ancient prayer they used to pray. So Jesus likely prayed that, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus now peels back the flaps and reveals his true nature in various ways in this section. The, excuse me, the unleavened bread that they were eating in their redemption from Egypt. Well, he says, that's me. I'm the bread that sustains you. My body is broken for you. Just like you break unleavened bread to represent your redemption from slavery in Egypt, you're breaking me for your salvation now. And you feed on me for your spiritual food now. And the wine cups that they drink during the Passover feast now represent spiritual drink to sustain them. But even more, the wine cups represent the blood of the lambs that was painted on the doorpost and on the lintel to protect them from the judgment of God on their children. But then he explains it even further in verse 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. My blood of the covenant. It's a strange expression. It's actually a link back to the Old Testament covenant that was given to the Israelites once they left Egypt, they wandered, Then they came to Sinai, God gave them the Ten Commandments and said, will you agree? Enter into covenant with you. They said, yes, we will agree. And then to ratify the covenant in ancient Near East, blood would be shed. But rather than like shedding the blood of all the people of Israel, because that would be pointless, they would shed the blood of animals and they would kill animals. And, And the blood of the covenant seals the covenant. Covenant is different to contract. You know, we enter into contracts, we have a lease with Tara, you know, we can end at any time. Covenants are relational. And when you kill an animal, you're saying, so be it to me if I break this covenant. We don't have that with Tara, thankfully. (laughs) So let's look at Exodus 24 when this covenant was ratified, that the old covenant, the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant, you might have heard all those words, is referred to the New Testament as the law. In short, then he said to Moses, that is God, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rulers and all the people answered with one voice. This is at Sinai. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, 
built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the tribes of Israel. So everyone's represented. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And here's the, and Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the, the, the covenant is established and ratified. God has entered into promise with his people and said, I will be your God, you will be my people. If you obey, I will protect you. If you live in my land and follow my rules and statutes, I will be a hedge around you and you will be blessed and you will be multiplied and you'll be great. But if you reject me, you'll be cut off. And so Jesus uses those words to say, that covenant is over. A new covenant begins. In Luke's gospel, the words new covenant are actually listed. And in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, the words new covenant are listed. We now don't, we don't live according to that covenant anymore. We're in a new relationship with God through Jesus. A relationship that was promised in Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah 31. Again, another reading. This is good news. Because if we break the old covenant, we're out. You don't want that. You want an unbreakable covenant. Covenant not sealed with the blood of lambs and oxes, but sealed with the blood of Christ. Look at this. Behold, this is after they've broken the covenant, after they've been kicked out of land, while they're in exile, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. At that point, they were separate. They weren't in unity. Eleven tribes on one side, one tribe on the other. I'm going to bring them together. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers that we just read about on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, so they're their adulterous wives, you know, various parts, they're called whores in the Old Testament. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Verse 28, Jesus says, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's a, that's a lifting of the flap right there. The new covenant, it's here. Sins forgiven. You enter into a new relationship with God through Christ, one that can't be broken. Eternal security for those who are truly in Christ. You don't need to be taught the law as such because when you become a Christian, you become a new person, a new creature on the inside, and you have the law of God within you. You still need to be taught. That's why you're here. But you have it in a different way. You have the Holy Spirit that they didn't have. It's a new covenant. It's a better covenant. 
And it's bought through the shedding of his blood. Not through our good works, not through our attendance, not through anything we do, but through him. It's his blood that ratifies the covenant. The flap is lifted. The reality is here. If you want to go home and study, I'd highly recommend reading Hebrews, the whole book. But if you don't have time, read Hebrews 8 to 10. If you don't have time, just read Hebrews 8 to 9, and you'll see this exact same argument made by the author to the Hebrews. All these verses come together, and you're like, oh, there it is. It's right there. But I want to read just one section of it for us now because I want these verses to sit over us as we take communion. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, i.e. temple, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, so if the old order had some value, God would accept it, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, remember the Passover lamb, without blemish, to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. They broke it. It's over. It's obsolete. Any Jewish person who is still trying to follow the old covenant will not be saved because the the old covenant, the new has come and it's in Christ. Promised eternal inheritance. So good. So this, <laughs> the whole story of Jesus, you, you read through it and you think, if you don't know the Old Testament, you think, oh, that's a nice story. Like, it's interesting. There's all these things happening. But this is no simple myth. This is layer upon layer upon layer of complexity and depth and theological significance and fulfillment of things that you couldn't fulfill unless you were God in charge of it all. It's woven together over millennia in a way that can't be constructed or fabricated. So when we take communion, we're eating the true unleavened bread, Christ. We are drinking the true Passover wine, the blood of Christ, and we are celebrating the fact that we have entered into a new covenant with God. And we have this sure and fixed promise that all our sin is paid for once for all. Verse 28, we are forgiven and we enter into relationship. Relationship. Covenant is not contract, it's relationship. Christianity is not about just coming to church, have your sins forgiven, do what you need to do, duty. It's about relationship with God and with his people. So what are we really doing when we take communion? Well, third lift the flap. A new covenant is being remembered. A new covenant is being remembered. So a new Passover 
the suffering son of man, and a new covenant. That's all bundled up in that little one centimeter square of bread and that little one mil or two of wine, (laughs) grape juice. So what are we really doing when we take communion? Well, in a sentence, we remember and participate in our salvation in Christ alone. We remember and we participate. It's a feast. We're involved. He says, take and eat, drink. We do it. It's a a drama and we're the actors. We're not saving ourselves, but we're entering into it. So how do we do that most effectively when we receive a piece of bread and a little cup of wine? Well, I've got four points of application that I think will help us as we take communion. And I think it would be helpful if we're holding the piece of bread and the little cup of wine as we do it. Uh, And so I'm going to ask the stewards if they could now come and hand out uh, the pieces of bread and the wine, and those who have been, uh, and just take a moment to reflect on all those truths as that's happening. And then I'll start to apply the passage and we'll take communion together and sing our final song. I just want to note, if you are not yet a Christian or in not good standing with someone within the church or living in unrepentant sin, um, I would encourage you to leave the communion um, table today and not participate. Um, And so look upon others and see what they, uh, you know, if you're not in that place uh, and just think, do I want to come back to the Lord? Do I want to come to Christ today? friends. So how do we remember and participate in this communion each week? Four things I want us to think about uh, that I read, you know, these words in a commentary and I thought this would help us. Firstly, look backward. Look backward. Look backward to the cross and as you hold the bread and wine in your hands, lift the flaps, so to speak. See, the Passover lamb was slain. His body broken, his blood shed so that God would pass over you and his wrath would not remain on you and that you would be forgiven. See oh, yeah, see the, the, the blood of the lamb that it's painted over the door of your house, so to speak, and you are safe. See the suffering son of man. It was the will of the Lord to crush him for you and I. Look backward and see that the new covenant was ratified through the shedding of blood so that all our sins would be forgiven and know that we enter into eternal relationship with God through that act. Then we look backward, we look forward. 
Verse 29, Jesus said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This feast, we look back and we look forward. We look forward to the day when we'll feast together in heaven forever with the best bread and the best wine, and it won't be gluten-free. There'll be gluten everywhere, and it'll be an awesome feast, and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain and all the sickness and all the pain and all the frustration, anxiety, and depression. All of that will be gone, and we'll be sitting around a very large table and sitting back and relaxing because of what Christ has done. So look backward, look forward. May it give you hope in your suffering and your tribulation. Look inward. Be reminded that it was your very sin, your sin that caused the death of Christ. And let communion be a time for you to come clean with God again, to repent fully of all your sin and receive the blessing of full forgiveness knowing Oh, it's been paid for. It's actually done. I don't have to carry that guilt anymore. It's done. It's done. It's done. It is finished. If you're not yet a Christian, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, let it look at it and go, this represents what I'm missing out on. I do not have protection. If this is true, if what the Bible says is true, God will not pass over me. This meal tells you that you're not in that you need to come in. Otherwise, if this is true, God's judgment will come on you. And so all you have to do as you watch communion is repent of your sins and believe, and then you can take it. And you can become a Christian. You can do it today. You can do it right now as you sit there. Look inward. and Deal with your sins. And finally, look outward. It's actually a family meal, communion. Uh, the, last, the Passover was meant to be done in family groups, the son to his father. And Jesus establishes a new family, the church, gathers his, with his 12 disciples. He's the father of that family. And he takes Passover with them. So when we take Passover, or we take communion rather, it's not this individualized little thing, even though we've got little cups. Some churches break one loaf of bread and drink from one cup. Some of you would find that gross. We have individual things for sanitation, but we don't want that to lose the fact that we share in Christ together. It's a family meal. And we look outward for those who aren't here that we want to invite to the feast. And let communion remind you that other people need to come. There's people in North Parramatta, around Iron Street, around our church, in your neighborhoods, in your workplace, in your family, that don't have the body and blood of Christ and will not be in that feast forever. So look backward, look forward, look inward, look outward. God, we thank you that you've given us this rich meal. May it feed us and nourish us and satisfy us. May we have that true inner peace knowing, oh, it is finished. And one day we will feast Lord, would you use this meal as a perpetual symbol for us as a church to continually come back to the gospel, to remember and never forget, to continually, individually and corporately participate in the gospel that we would remember and never forget. And Lord, as we finish, would you send us out to invite others to the feast? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.